0: Hello and welcome to another Driven by Words, the Warsaw Libraries podcast. Just want to give you a quick heads up before we start. Occasionally in this podcast you can hear a bit of a tapping noise. Uh, That's best-selling author John Connolly tapping the table as he talks. We didn't realise it would show up quite so much as it does. So yeah, enjoy the podcast, have fun, but that noise you can hear is John tapping the table. Welcome to uh, the Warsaw Arby's podcast, driven by words. I'm Tom Bisson. With me today is Gemma Todd. Uh, and today, taking time there before he goes on stage to entertain his fans, is best-selling author Mr. John Connolly. Hello. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> entertain his
1: fans. <laughs> presumptuous really are you you know yeah you're just gonna sit there you just like. gonna sit there yeah just whatever yeah is that a book yeah I haven't got a uh, signed James Elroy book that somebody had given me I would signed the entire print run of oh, My Dark Places about oh, uh, 30,000 books well by the end of it what was was a single vertical slash on the coast going, yeah there is one for the grandchildren yeah whatever yeah yeah so yeah so let's, let's not raise people's hopes are truly here okay <laughs> Well the good news is this will
0: be going live after the event so Oh fantastic that so
1: by that, by that point they'll know they've been disappointed yeah. but there'll be nothing they can do about it okay
0: very good um, So you're the author of the uh, if you don't mind me saying magnificent Charlie Parker series of books Oh go on uh, <laughs> You must But the, the reason that you're here today, you're doing a tour The Book of Lost Things, which is also a fabulous mm-hmm. book, a uh, kind of adult fairy tale, if you don't mind me describing it like that. No, sure. It's the 10th anniversary edition that's been released, and you're kind of promoting that. Uh, so what we thought we'd ask you to do is, if you could do an elevator pitch of the book of Lost Things now, then we'll do a load of other stuff we've got planned and talk about it in more detail at the end of the podcast. An elevator pitch is that? Is that like Hollywood? It's, jargon. it's fun, Gemma, yeah.
2: Oh, really? They ask us to do it all the time now. Oh, what's an awful. elevator? I
0: don't watch what An you, elevator pitch. you don't want you to
2: describe the entirety of your book in like two sentences. Oh, good lord! It's so I guess really, You're trapped really with
0: someone in an elevator that you know. You get talking. What Gemma Reuter or What you like And you've got to try play? and flog mm. them your book. I you're guess. trapped <laughs>
2: in an elevator.
1: Yeah, why we trapped in the elevator. It's not fireless now. Anyway, I've written the book. Uh, yeah. Just in case we live, you might want to think about picking up a need to call
0: the emergency services. No, you need to buy my book. Yeah, yeah, listen, no, yeah,
1: no, don't read, don't, don't press that bell. Don't, don't press that bell. I'm giving you my pitch. Don't press the bell. Uh, a boy loses his mother to illness and retreats into a world composed of folk tales and fairy tales in an effort to understand what's happened to him. That's
2: it. considering you've never done that before
1: okay. that was <laughs> oh, there you go, there you go. can we call the fire brigade now <laughs> fine <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so what we were thinking we'd do now we'll ask you a few kind of library centric questions okay. uh, and then we've got like a, a mini fun and games que- uh, section which we find fun, the guests
1: mm, sometimes we'll see, do, yeah. sometimes do hilarity <laughs> does not always ensue <laughs> it
0: tends to on this side of the desk okay. um, so we'll start with a big one uh, what do the libraries mean to you
1: I come from a generation, uh, I feel quite old when I say that, but I look in the mirror and I am quite old. (laughs) Um, Where uh, my first thing my mother did when I started exhibiting any sign of wanting to read was was to get me a library ticket because um, books, certainly new books, weren't particularly affordable. You Mm. know, now we look at the best of and people go out and buy hardback because, you know, the prices of them are next to nothing and books, really, as a proportion of income, haven't gone up terribly much in price. Uh, But when I was growing up, you. Nobody bought new hardback books. The only place they bought a new hardback book was, was the library. Uh, and if you wanted to, you could wait until the paperback book came out, you know, sometimes a year and a half, yeah. a lot longer. You know, the, the gap between hardback and paperback publication has, has shortened so much now. Um, so that if you wanted to read, that was the place you went to. And every house, my parents' house, had a, everybody had quite a small library because um, I think everybody wanted to show that they valued books. Uh, so they would always have, you know, there'd be a couple of Reader's Digest condensed volumes, which everybody seemed to have, you know, biography of Mary Queen of Scots for some oh. strange reason, <laughs> uh, Thomas Pakenham's Year of Liberty, and see my parents' bookshops. Uh, so it's quite limited. And so the idea was that because I was a vore- going to be, my mother clearly thought I was going to be a voracious reader and she was right the first thing we do was take to the library. There's your library ticket and you, you then exhausted the the junior section of the library because there wasn't really what we think of as young adult fiction then. You know, yeah. pretty much ceased at the age of 12 and then 13, whatever, you went into the adult library. And so that was what happened. Eventually I kind of said, can I have an adult library ticket because there really is nothing left in here unless I'm going to start, you know, reading picture books, you know, yeah. and books that make elephant noises when you open them. <laughs> and and being told by the stern librarian at Brown Library, uh, you're not going to you know, borrow anything inappropriate. I'm thinking, this is Dublin in the 70s. Good luck finding anything in the appropriate. Number. I mean, I did try. Uh, the closest thing to sex I found on the library shows was a book that Mary Whitehouse had written about, about sex in the media, which was actually really grubby because she had made that terror error thinking that you know she was clearly you know, preaching to, to everybody who was just disgusted all the time. So were quite lengthy letters from people who were discovering the joys of masturbation that she was complaining about. I'm thinking, well, that sounds great. Um, so yeah, so so Mary Whitehouse ruined me essentially. <laughs> uh, so it was it was it was a, such a so I, I used to, um, I mean, I'd go twice a week. I you know you had three library tickets, and I would have exhausted them by, yeah. by halfway through the week. So hugely important to me, uh, libraries, and and I think, you know, w- w- what you notice, I think particularly in a downturn, you know, when, when things are going well, your library sometimes might maybe you're not getting as many people through your doors because perhaps they have you know they've a little bit more money in their pockets and yeah. they're prepared to buy a book. The minute there's a downturn. People Mm -hmm. come back to libraries, people who read and and really want to keep reading and maybe don't find they don't have quite as much money. they will come back to libraries and think, you know, you go in and and the books are there and there are people who's, you know, it's one of the noblest vocations because actually even in a bookstore, and I love booksellers, they're trying to flog you something. A library only wants you to come in and find the thing that's going to make you happy. And Mm -hmm. and in that sense, they are wonderful, wonderful as much for what they represent, as, as the actual opportunities for coming inside the doors, and they are like the canaries in the coal mine. I think when libraries begin closing, when access to public art for free is cut off, something has gone very wrong in a society. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's what's so sort of troubling about. It. We've had this debate in Ireland at the moment about. Um, Having, uh, having libraries open 24 hours a day but without staff, so you, yeah. you'll have a slide key that allows you to go in, but actually part of the experience of a library is the staff, part is, is these people who are not just, not just staff, they're curators, they're cherishing this collection, and they're there to provide advice and to guide you, and, and a library without people, that uh, people behind the counter isn't, isn't a lot, it's just kind of a, a room with books in it, there's something, there's a difference there, it needs that, part of it is that lovely moment of human interaction. And also, on a maybe on a level that's not really to do with books, but it's a bit like the way I felt when when they began closing post offices and things. There are, it is a moment of, it's a moment of contact between people. And increasingly, we live in a contactless society. We live in a society where you don't hear a voice on the phone, where the interaction is is purely with buttons and with codes and. And it's very important for for a lot of people that that you have that opportunity just to come in somewhere and to talk to somebody and yeah. somebody who isn't just there, like yeah. I said, to flog you something or to get something from you. But it, it, these things are they're the things that hold us together, um, and and I think we we tend we tend to be very quick to dismiss them, and we tend to it tends to be a very easy way to, to if we're going to cut budgets, we'll, we'll cut libraries because you know yeah. it's like libraries and prisons, yeah, yeah they're the ones where. You know, the people who use them are probably the ones who, you know, they're either very particularly vulnerable, uh, or in the case of libraries, they're the people who need the most, and yet they're also probably the people who have a, a voice that's, that's, that's very hard for them to have heard. So yeah, I'm a huge personatiser for libraries. That's fantastic. Come couldn't for a better an answer, yeah. to be fair. There's about
2: <laughs>
0: 20 little speech <laughs> things I want to take out and just hold
1: up. Yeah, I have loads of opinions, don't worry, yeah. I'll have another one soon, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so the next question was going to be, how long have you been a member of a library? But I'm, You just pretty much answered that from... from yeah, you know, from, from quite an early, from a very, very early age. Oh, OK, so where was the last library that you visited but to use, not to
1: do at all? Yeah. I still occasionally use the Library in Trinity. Uh, where I went to university because one of the nice things about it if you're a graduate they give you graduates graduate, readers ticket. Um, and because it's a copyright library, it has this amazing resource. So essentially, you know, every copy of every book that's published in the UK or Ireland has to be has to be stored in it. Um, and so it is a place to go occasionally go like, oh, you know you can research things on on the internet, but actually the internet's full of rubbish. And there's no nobody is actually you know some most of it's unreliable, um, it's all based around algorithms. And there's something about getting a book by somebody who's, you know, has actually done it to such a degree and enough research that it's justified putting it into a, a yeah. decently bad piece of manuscript and immersing yourself in it because, you know, the, the tendency again on the internet is to flick. Everything is a hyperlink. And, and the moment you look at something on the screen, you begin scanning. That's why you can't edit on a screen. It's just not possible. Your eye immediately begins to scan. And so if you're researching something, that process of immersion is very, very important. And... And that's why you know it's probably why I also still I I don't own a digital reader, an e-reader. It makes no sense to me. I I feel that my, and there are people who probably would would differ a little bit. But actually, I suspect if you were to analyse the eye movements of people who are reading a book and people who are looking at a screen, they would be different. The the way they take in the information is different. Interesting. so I like that process of immersion that I have. If, if there's a book in front of me and I can't flick from it, the only thing I can do is turn the page on that book or alternatively pull up another volume beside it, I'm going to read in a very different way, whereas if I'm looking at Wikipedia or something with all of these hyperlinks in it that I can keep dipping in and out of, that's a very distracting way to research. So. Yeah,
0: because it really takes you off topic, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it, well, you're always going to be... You're, you're chasing rabbits down holes yeah. a little bit, and, and that's not necessarily conducive to the kind of for the kind of research you want to do, or the kind of reading I want to do. Excellent. Um, where's your library card right now? That's a, well, My Trinity one is at home somewhere. Uh, my Dolphin's barn. I suppose if I went back to Dolphin's barn, they'd reactivate my <laughs> library card. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, my local library is now is now because I've moved. My local library is now Rathmines. Um, so, but the, the Trinity one is probably the one I would use more. Okay. And is ask. there anything issued on any of the cards? Do I? Or do you mean? Do I have any unpaid fines You're or not something? You're <laughs> asking a sent typical librarian question. You don't owe anybody any money, do you? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. There isn't. There isn't at the moment. Um, they tend to be for me now. They are a, a research place. They're yep. a place to go to immerse myself in something. Oh, um, okay. I have reached that stage where I quite, um, I quite like owning because I went for so long without a uh, sense ridiculous. But I went for so long without owning any new books. Um, you know, the books I bought when I was a child, set well, used books, I haunted yeah. used bookstores. And in the glorious the pre internet days, you know, when I fell in love with a writer, and I remember falling, you know, for Ed McBain or or maybe Ian Fleming, I'm trying to think of writers I read when I was quite young. Um, the only way to find new books by the way, if the library did and the library didn't always have, you know, Ed McBain was probably, you know, had written whatever by that point, thirty something books, there might have been three of them in our yeah. library. You haunted used bookstores and you haunted sales of work, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and there was that sense of discovery when you found, uh, when you found one of those copies of a book that you hadn't read, and you brought it home. I remember the first time I had money in my pocket. Um, I got a job with. I wanted to be a librarian. It was quite interesting to two librarians um, when I left school. I turned down a place in college because I actually didn't want to do what I'd been offered and my father had a meltdown, obviously, <laughs> Um he thought this was the end of the world. Uh, and so I applied for a job at the council and, and I was offered one of two jobs. I could, I could be a clerical officer or a librarian. I really wanted to be a librarian, and my father, who uh, was a clerical, he starts as a clerical officer and was now a great collector, dreadful job, um, said, he said, nobody, nobody has ever, nobody has ever, no librarian has ever become city manager. And I remember thinking, I think you think my, my career in the public service may be going on longer than I have any plans for. I being really uh, regretful about that. I, I think my father had a lot of ambition knocked out of me, he was from that generation, and um, And so people like us didn't become actors, we didn't become writers, and we certainly didn't become librarians. Um, And so I always regretted that. And so I, I, but I remember getting my first check from the council, and it was as much money as I'd ever had. It was 102 quid. Mm. Never had that much money in my hand, uh, because I came from a very working class background. And there was a Penguin bookstore in Dublin, uh, in those good old days, when, when, you know, publishers almost had their own bookstores. And I'd been hunting it, because I had all these amazing, like, there there was a... God, what did I buy? I remember I bought Dr. Zhivago new, and I bought a, a little Oxford research library with a good dictionary and thesaurus. It's kind of kidding. I'm nerd. Uh, and it, Mishima, a book by Mishima on Hagakure. These just books that I, you know, because they were, they were new and they were, they were reasonably expensive. Yeah. Um, and I remember that it'd take me home. And so I began, that began a kind of, my relationships with libraries changed slightly in that um, I would still use the library. But when I could, I liked. I wanted to build up a library of my own. And I think yes. that's the next step mm-hmm. from when you haunt libraries, you think. And that's what's lovely about it. You become a person who wants to be surrounded by books. Yeah. You know, you like sitting in a library. And therefore, if the library's going to be closed, you don't want to go home to a room with just four walls and a, a painting of a big old child with a dog on the wall. You <laughs> kind of begin then assembling your, your own version of it. And I think that's a very natural yeah, thing to do
0: you know. It is weird I, I don't know whether you'd agree general. when you become a librarian though I haven't got as many books now as I would have expected myself to have at this age because I've got quite and between, when I, you know when I get Of
1: course books. yeah and you live in a you know your, your, work, your working environment is, yeah. is being surrounded by books so whereas for, for the rest of it it is you know we're lucky if we're in a place where we're surrounded because most people work in an office or yeah. you know you're not sitting surrounded by volumes and new stuff constantly coming in you know that's Quite lovely in a way. So, So, we try, those of us who love books, try and replicate that in our homes, I think.
2: The first thing I do when I go into someone's home and they've got bookshelves, and I go straight over because yeah. I think it's like a window to the soul. Almost, you can you can really tell a lot about a person about the the books that they choose to buy, or whether they have any at all. It's a bit like record
1: collections, mm. you know, where you, you discreetly flick through. And right? if you were invited back to somebody's house, you flick through the record collection. and think God, fuck all, it's no jacket apart. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be on my way then, shall I? You know, yeah. Our, our neighbours are point and the next people who only had a set of encyclopedias on their on the shelf, uh, and I remember the woman saying, well, oh, I don't really have, really have any time to read, and I kind of had that moment of thinking, I don't really have any time to talk to you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bye uh, yeah. that's such a common thought Whenever <laughs> yeah. I hear that yeah, they, and they could have been like saving orphans in the, in the Middle East <laughs> and things I would have gone, nope, still not my kind of people No. Nope. <laughs> bye
0: yeah, I, I think there are something being lost, getting back to what you were saying about uh, your library having three copies of Edmund Bain. I remember going into a library when I was younger, and I didn't know how many books an author I liked had read and what books they were. Nowadays, I know everything; I can look it up at the click. And there was something nice about going in and being like, "Oh no, I, I haven't read that one. I yeah. have seen it. I didn't know."
1: I mean, it you to that, appear out of nowhere? Yeah. yeah, it was it was fast. It was fantastic. Or you know that thing of ordering a book and having to wait for it. You know <laughs> where there would be a waiting list. You know, my mother was. I remember my mother was a huge Catherine Cooks fan. And you know, six months. You, I don't know how she'd have found out. There was whatever there was. The Catherine Cooks, maybe it'd have been mentioned in a woman's one of her magazines or something. Every day, all put their names down, you know. And you'd be waiting weeks to slowly moving up the list because they'd have one copy of the new Catherine Cooks yeah. book, you know. And when she got it, it was like, oh, you know, she was chuffed. I'd be sent up with the dog to get it, you know. <sighs> I get the new Catherine Cookson. And they were grim. God, you yeah, think of Catherine Cookson as being kind of cosy, everybody was miserable and abused. Oh, yeah, God,
2: she was a sadist. <laughs> they still love those books, don't they they? They, they? they
1: really do, yeah. Yeah, they, I don't think that fascination never goes away. <laughs>
0: um, if you could make every library authority in the country buy one book, a book that perhaps hasn't been given the credit wow. it deserves, aside from any of your own. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: God, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. What would I make them? Um, you know, I, you're always tempted to think the, the book that you love, which, I mean, the novel, and I, I, it's not terrible, it's about 20 years ago. 20 years, actually, less than that, 10 years ago, since I actually managed to get through it. Mean, I love Bleak House. I just okay. think, once you read Bleak House by Dickens, everything else seems, to, in a whole lot of ways, seems quite thin by comparison. It's a big watch of change, it's Bleak House. But I remember thinking that I've never read anything quite so I felt like I just had been lost in a completely different world. And when I came out of it, I just thought this is and this is none of us is ever going to be in this league. This is just extraordinary. But um you know, but then what a lot of people are gonna maybe gonna take bleak house out and think, oh bloody dickens. You can't move <laughs> on. There's a lot of fog in this. Can we can we cut to the chase? Um I'm trying to think of something that's simply given me pleasure. Oh, you know I put um if we could kind of immerse it into one volume I suppose like, the, the Jeeves and Wooster stories about okay. P.G. Woodhouse I, I just think you can you can go back to those again and again and, and I couldn't like anybody who didn't like Jeeves and, those Jeeves and Wooster stories and the other P.G. Woodhouse I'm, I'm not very keen on the blanding stuff it doesn't quite do it for me yeah. but I suppose it's the relationship that, between these two men which I find quite fascinating and he, and he was just a beautiful joyful writer yeah. and uh, yeah so I put him there simply for the fact that if you're having a bad day Maybe yeah. Bleak House is not gone place. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm having a bad day. <laughs> bleak House. There you go. That put it in perspective for you. My my you yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you couldn't. You can. You know, read something. Coming like, given the time of year we're coming into Jeeves and the Yuletide spirit, and not yeah. just think this is, this is just made me feel a little bit better about the world, and that's that's quite lovely for a book to do that. Um, so, who would you say is your favourite author? Um, oh, see, it varies from day to day. Um... I Bleak has just some of those moments for me I suppose you know it, and, and, uh, I mean, within the genre um, if we're talking about mystery fiction I suppose it, it's going to go into massive subdivisions now. Uh, I mean living James Lee Burke I suppose within the genre I just think um, an extraordinary beautiful writer who, real, who just felt that, that mystery fiction the prose in mystery fiction and, and the depth of thought beside it in, within it should, should aspire to the condition of art um, there's no reason why um, mystery fiction shouldn't be uh, as beautifully written as as, as any other type yeah. of literature. It's, it shouldn't be the poor relative. Uh, and for the ones who've gone before, Ross MacDonald, who probably isn't read as much as people should, was the first great psychological novelist that the genre produced, and the first great poet of empathy and compassion. Okay. Um, his, his detective, Lou Archer, says, at one point I hear voices crying in the night and I go see what's the matter. And I love that kind of that moral impetus yeah. to act. Um, in poetry, E.E. E. Cummings, again, that was one of those people I, I, I discovered completely back, sometimes I at a Woody Allen movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, and the Michael Caine character gives Barbara Hershey a volume of Cummings poetry, and Allen uses one line from it as an intertitle, which is, uh, nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. And I'm just thinking, God, well, and I, you know, I'd gone through, I wasn't, I was working for the corporation at the time, and I'd obviously studied poetry at school, but I'd never connected. And then, I'm, but I remember, again, my library had no E.E. So that was, that was, you're pushing it slightly. you have got <laughs> Yates. Um, and having to order Cummings volumes from the United States, from Liveright in the United States, that came to our local bookstore, not local bookstore, the bookstore in the centre of town, it's very old-fashioned. Uh, called Hannah's, and they would, when a book arrived, I would get a, a card, a signed card in a copper plate saying that my esteemed order had arrived. That's and cool I go down to the basement and they would pull out this lever. And it took me about four books to find the poem that I wanted. Um, but by then I'd become completely smitten. You know, I love and I'd read his, his lectures and, and everything so so Cummings yeah so the, those for me those would be kind of cornerstone and, and then obviously Woodhouse and, and in the supernatural genre Emor James you know and all of those people have fed into what I do in some form or another I think your work is definitely art like the way you write is I
0: am turn it off time be professional it's a
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's okay.
0: <laughs> Thank, um, you. That's that's good to say. Thank you. That's very nice. So, the the next question was going to be, "What's your favourite book?" I'm going to rule Bleak House out, okay, just in, just in case you were going to say that, okay. you or not, so we can get something else from you. Yeah,
1: so. again, that varies from day. I, I would have kind of a list of four or five that that move around. I, I love the Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. Okay. Um, I remember having a second-hand copy of that, a little battered Penguin copy. And with two chapters to go, left it on the bus. And kind of thought, and actually just went into a bookstore and said, look, I need a copy of The Three Musketeers, you know. Sounds like something out of a Dan Brown novel. I need The Three Musketeers now. They're 236. Um, Just like the last two chapters. I I think it's it's an amazing book. I, I love The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. Uh, I love Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. It's okay. one of those books. That they're kind of books that I've read more than once, that, which are quite rare. I, I don't tend to reread books. Yeah. But those books I've gone back to again and again. If mm-hmm. I keep talking about Wuthering Heights, I think like, I should really read Wuthering Heights again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. <laughs> so that they would be be they would be always be on me. If I was putting a list of ten books together, those would always be on the list. Woodhouse would be on the list. Excellent. Okay, Uh, and the last question we've got before we move on to the fun
0: and games is what are you reading at the moment or is there anything that you've read recently I'm reading
1: a book called Seasons in the Sun by Dominic Sandbrook which is a history of uh, Britain from 1974 to 79. grim as all hell but I loved his he wrote a book called oh god the great great British what was the book he wrote at the start of this year he wrote a book about, about Britain's cultural influence on the world so you know he was dealing with television and literature and um, comedy and drama and I loved it I just I hadn't read his work before and then I picked up Seasons of So Much about 800 pages long and it's, it's quite political in its way but fascinating for a period that I, I, I was a child in and probably don't know as much about it as I should yeah. and uh, and so I'm quite it's it's quite and I also have to I'm rereading Michel Paver's uh, Dark Matter because um, I, um, I do a, a book group back in Dublin and they wanted to do something vaguely Halloweenish. Uh, so they're beating Dark Matter and David Mitchell's Slate House. Okay. Um, and David Sidehouse, I can remember because I read it only less than a year ago. But dark matter, I need to read again. And I was hotter. Gave me a copy of Becky Chambers' new book because I really uh, liked them. Interview
2: interviewing and oh, are you? Well, please yeah. do tell I said I. Really uh-huh. liked her
1: yeah. her first book, and so the, I was in the office, and uh, and I said, "Do you want a copy new?" I said, "Oh yes, please." <laughs> so there are the books I'm carrying around with me. But Sandbrook, I've been reading for it's, it's 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 I mean it's not hard going. It's just oh. that you it's very very long. Um, but I quite love it now I've, I've maybe it's a product of age and I think as well I, I alternate fiction and non-fiction but I'm also very aware of the gaps in my knowledge I think you can be overwhelmed by new books and yeah. by new music and everything and, and I realise there are things I don't know enough about so I've always, I'm very consciously trying to go back and, and read the books that maybe I should have read, and to fill in those little gaps in my knowledge that I'm yeah. very aware of.
0: It's interesting to find out what was going on at a time when you were too young to have
1: it. Yeah, and but you have vague, no vague yeah. memories of it. I, I'm just at the point. Of, I, I remember Ross McWhirter and people may not remember him, but he he and his brother had set up the Guinness Book of Records. Okay. Uh, the record they used to be on record breakers on television. <laughs> With Royal and Royal Ross, Ross Mc, Ross yeah, Roy Castle, yeah, yeah he's certainly one of my favourite. Anecdotes. I might stick in at the end because I think it's great. Uh, but Ross McRutter, uh, I remember him being killed by the IRA, um, and I, but I had no memory of why. I thought, you know, the IRA were killing just about anybody, so it, it didn't really matter at one level. But then reading about him, this he was quite right wing. He, you know, he believed British society was going to the dogs, but he was also quite principled, and he said, you know, he, he felt that people from Southern Ireland, the minute they arrived in the country, should have to register their details and have their passport pages copied, and this is the only way to combat terrorism. And I think the IRA just saw him as soft target and killed him at his home. But, you know, it's it, it was an incredibly bleak period in, in Britain that transitioned from, you know, the, the kind of disintegration of labour, the rise of Thatcher. Um, but also, in many ways, culturally very interesting. There was some extraordinary writing coming out on television and film. So it's, it's very interesting looking at that.
0: OK, so we're, what we'll do then, we'll move on to the, uh, the fun and game section. So the first bit is... It's a bit that we call Blurred Blurbs. Um, OK. Indeed. OK, so what we've done... I've taken two books that... I think they've both been made into films, have they? Yeah. Yes. They've both been made into films, and I've, I've merged the blurbs for both of the books together. Gemma's going to read the Blurred, blurred blurb. blurb to you, and you've got to guess what the two, two books, books are. Two
2: books 1939, Nazi Germany. US Marshal Teddy Daniels has come to the Ireland to find an escaped prisoner, Liesl, a nine-year-old girl. Living with a foster family on Himmel Street, a killer hurricane... Bears down on the island, and the investigation deepens as the questions mount. Liesel steals books, but how has a barefoot woman escaped from a locked room? Who is leaving them clues in the form of cryptic codes? And what happens to the inhabitants of a street as the bombs begin to fall? This is a small story about a girl and a accordionist. Is that right? Mm. This is a small story about a girl and a accordionist, some fanatical Germans, and what goes on in Ward C. The closer Teddy gets to the truth, the more elusive it becomes. He begins to believe that he may never leave the island because a Jewish fistfighter and a lot of thievery are trying to drive him insane. Oh, that's just too easy. Is it really? Shutter Island and the book team. Yes. How how quickly did you get
1: them? Like? Um, Shutter Island and the first was like Teddy Daniels and then Liesl from the book team. But I let me read, on oh, just because you seem to be enjoying yourself. I'm so pleased with that. <laughs> have
2: you read them both as well? I have,
1: yeah.
0: I figured that you'd like Dennis... No. I don't like Shyvana.
2: Really? Do you know? No. Oh, okay. no,
1: I wanted to throw it against the wall I when I finished it. Really? Yeah. I think it's a short story. I don't think it's. I a, it's yeah, a, I don't. Care the the ending one. just didn't do it for me. Oh, okay. the
2: film was is fantastic, isn't it? I didn't like, like the movie. film either. I think I do came you? in
1: so completely prejudiced
2: oh. and
1: I like Dennis Lehane's work. I just don't like Sugar Island
2: uh, right, our second game, which is possibly my favourite one, is the Spellmaster Spelling Bee. Oh, God. So
1: you're our third.
2: <laughs> you're our third interview, I think. So we've had Kit Deverall on. And she got two. Out of five. Out of five. Grief. And I, we've had Polly Howe Yen, who's a children's author, and she's got three. So you, you've bad. got to beat three. There's five words. So I've actually been quite surprised by how badly. Again, <laughs> no
0: pressure. <laughs> yeah, I'm <it's here>, oh. <laughs> I, I just want to point out at this stage. Okay. Gemma chooses the words. Mm. Nothing do. to do with me. All
2: right, are you ready? Go on, then. Word number one, alliteration.
1: A L L I T. E or A T I O N.
2: Yes, excellent. Let me mark these, because last time I forgot to mark
1: God, this is wrong. Oh. What a dreadful thing to be asking somebody. <laughs> <laughs> of people.
2: One out of one. Now this is one I I find to dif- have difficulty with. Maneuver. Oh, I can never get that Because I because
1: I actually and because I use American spelling, I'm doomed in oh, I love uh, okay, that. no uh, okay. M-A-N... O-E-U-V-O-R-E.
2: Holy crap, yes. That's well <laughs> oh, done. Oh, fair play. That is very good. Okay, somnambulism.
1: S-O-M-N-A-M-P-U-L-I-S-M.
2: Three out of three? So you're even, Stephen, with Polly at the moment. Okay, liaison. Or well, liaison, depending on your pronunciation.
1: L-I-A-I-S-O-M. <laughs>
2: Oh, do you know, we're going to get this last one as well, ostentatious. That's not even that hard.
1: O S T E N T A T I O U S.
2: Oh, (laughs) i have got the bonus one. The bonus word is supersede.
1: Ah, okay, that's an interesting one because I I think you can spell that two ways if you're doing the American spelling. So I, I think we would go S U P E or C E D E. But I think you might get away with SED as well.
2: It used to be SED here, so, yeah. I mean, it's like within the last 20 to 40 years, it's it's just dropped and it's seen you now in this country. But yeah. He even got the bonus Fantastic. one, right. In your face, Kip <laughs> <laughs> Loser! You stretch the top of the leaderboard. Well done, John. Go.
0: Thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> well, that was fun for us.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh, <boy. laughs>
0: okay so coming back to uh, what I've called John Connolly chat um, the Charlie Parker series I thought we talk about that initially um, it is amazing it's uh, well there's, there's loads of words I could use I'm, I'm not gonna I'm Thank gonna you. let readers go and or listeners even go and find the books uh, what inspired it and did you have any inkling how big it would be and how long it would go on did you have like a, an overview No, first? no I
1: Never underestimate the power of a chip on your shoulder. Uh, I was working for the Irish Times, a very unhappy journalist, and um, and kind of I felt I had a I kind of wanted to prove point. I think um, there were a lot of people in that paper who were much better journalists than I was ever going to be. I just wasn't. My heart really wasn't in journalism as a way to be paid to write. And there were people who were going to become great novelists. I think some of them may still be planning to become great novelists at some point. Um, <laughs> And I just out of frustration began writing, uh, and I hadn't written fiction since I'd left school, since I'd written school essays, um, so the first thing I sat down to write was really the beginning of everything, and I just it was that we with a man going to visit a grave, and that was all I had, and it took five years, so... Um, and then even when it was picked up when, when a publisher was, a hunter said they wanted to publish it my immediate instinct was kind of back and i do it properly um, you know because you don't expect to be you, you hope you'll be published but you, you don't expect and if you expect to be published you probably shouldn't be um, no and then I, I was taken a bit by surprise and, and so I, I found myself on a very quickly writing a book a year and then I, I, I stopped after four books and thought I, I, I'm not sure what I'm doing here Um. And I wrote two other things. I wrote a collection of short stories, and I wrote a, a kind of stand-alone. And then thought I kind of had figured out what I wanted to do, which was that why the, the tradition in mystery fiction was that each book in a series should be quite discreet, a bit like episodes of Columbo or Hawaii Five O. You know that you didn't have to watch last week's Columbo. Yeah. Very occasionally, there'd be like a a, a a two-parter, which was like a rift in space and time. Because a two-parter in Columbo, what are they trying to do to us? Um, but you know that people had no memory. Uh, and and so um, I thought, well, why, whereas fantasy literature or science fiction and historical fiction was often quite prepared to have a sequence of novels that was vaguely interconnected and in character from book two might crop up in book 10. And, and part, yeah. that was part of the pleasure of it and was to see a larger narrative emerging in the background. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of what I want to do. I, I want to see if I can write a series where you can read them in any order you want to. But if you read them in in publication order, it's quite clear that you're getting parts of a larger puzzle yeah, um, and that might be and it was to give it a kind of momentum, I suppose, um, which it might not otherwise have had. Uh, but th- that all happened along the way. I, I would like to say I was I was like Jake and claiming that she stuck the last chapter of Harry Potter and I said, No, you didn't. Give me a break. Uh, you know, there's a lot of that around. Um, you know, you 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 develop it as you go along and you kind of find your feet a little and it's still an ongoing process. Okay. I mean, if my doctor tells me next week, you know, my next medical checkup I wouldn't book a holiday after November, you know, I kind of would know I could give it a conclusion, but the path to that conclusion I haven't yeah. quite decided yet.
0: So Charlie, Angel and Louis. Mm. Is it Louis or Louis? It's Louis, Excellent. yeah. One That's at one point,
1: somebody's angel says to him, you're only kings of France of that name. That's, you right. Know? <laughs> That's right,
0: yeah. Who's your favourite out of those three characters? Because I struggle. Like, it yeah. should be Charlie. Yeah,
1: well, I think they all... One of the reasons why I've never written another book that was really an Angel and Louis book was because I think they... When they're together, they bring out facets of each other's characters. Yeah. And so you see them in a slightly different light. Uh, yeah, Parker would be a very... Would have been just completely. He was quite difficult to like in the early books, and, and they brought out something admirable in him. Yeah. You could see why somebody would want to be with him, and equally with them, they with him they realise that they've become. I think, new use of the phrase that they have been contaminated by morality yes. at one point. <laughs> um, you know that they have signed on for this crusade that they realise would probably result in their deaths, but they. They are prepared to do it's it. Right yeah, to... yeah, but yeah, there is. They kind of. They're all looking for a kind of salvation or redemption. I think, and they yeah. see it in him. I think. Um, so I don't know. Oh. Uh, you know, I they're very easy to write.
0: They are, in a way, some of the scenes you do, you read, and you're not sure what character the scenes about, and then somebody who's in the room with them will comment on the dress sense of one mm. of the two, and instantly you know it's Angel.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. They have that little. So they're they're lovely, right? And it's what's quite lovely as well is that we. There is an assumption I think uh, in about mystery fiction from people who don't read enough of it really that it's it's all plot driven. But all good fiction is character driven. Yeah. And and so it's it's quite lovely if you're a writer and, and these characters you've created um inspired degree of affection in readers. That, you know, they're part of their pleasure in picking up the book is not necessarily the plot of the book. It's because they want to spend time with these people for four hundred pages. Yeah, that's and, and that's the great joy of being a reader, is 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 that interaction with characters who kind of we you know we know that they're not real, but they but equally they're not entirely unreal either. They begin to assume this kind of independent existence. Almost like you know, you open the book and it pops up as a kind of hologram of these people. Yeah. Uh, and that's the pleasure of it, I think.
0: Excellent. Um short stories, you've got two collections out, uh, Nocturnes and the recently released Night Music. Is that
1: a format that you're a fan of yourself? Do you read short stories? Only short ghost stories. Uh, I mean there are some i mean there's some fantastic short stories uh, outside the genre um, but' it's that i don't read short stories at all in mystery in the mystery form okay um, i don't by and large they don't work for me and, and my interest in mystery fiction is to read in the long form I quite like that that unraveling and that time spent with the characters like I said whereas the supernatural the the shorter the piece generally the more effective it is the longer the piece, the harder it is not just to sustain tension but because Ultimately, if you write a long novel, you have to provide an explanation of some kind. Whereas with a short story, you're really just pulling aside the veil and people get a glimpse of something and then you let it fall back again. And, and so for that reason, I think that's why even if you look at a list of, occasionally those lists of 100 great, you know, supernatural stories or supernatural novels, yeah. always plumped up by novellas and collections. You know, The Turn of the Screw is a novella. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a novella. Um, and then you often find there's a James collection or there's a couple of Lovecrafts or there's E.F. Benson or somebody in it. Uh, you know, it is, the short form is ideally suited to the supernatural story, so That's why whenever I've written short stories, they tend to be, I, I did one last, week, or last year, or this year, for a collection of, of Irish, my Irish crime writers. But it was still a ghost story. You know, I had no interest in writing a crime story for it.
0: So when they said to, you, will you contribute?
1: Will you like in your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's always yeah, but yeah, I will. <laughs> but you know, it's it's not going to be a crime story. And I noticed it was it was reviewed in the Irish Times yesterday uh, by somebody I know who's quite uh, he's very very academically inclined. Uh, he, he's a man named John Kern who edited Agatha Christie's notebooks. Oh, nice. so, but it's, so it's quite purist, I think, in, in terms of the form. And I know oh, so. You mentioned every writer, but not my story. And because I, I know he probably read it and thought, i know not the second. Look, look at the cover. Okay, this is not a crime story, and therefore I'll have no truck with that kind of nonsense." You know. You learn to shook these things. Okay, fair enough. I see where you're coming from.
0: Um, so moving on to uh, the book of lost things, uh, what inspired it? Because I've, I've read that it's your most personal book, um, and how did its
1: reception when it was released make you feel? Um, yeah, yeah, it was a. I suppose you know on one level you hope that everything you write is personal and, and everything that you write is going to be the book that you're the work that you're most passionate about at the time but I suppose because there's a lot of me growing up um, as a child who grew up with books and stories and um, and kind of remember grief and things Um and um, and my own childhood I was the first person in my family to go to see a psychiatrist my mother was so proud <laughs> uh, uh, because I had OCD and I had all kinds of weird concerns and things and, and so a lot of that fed into the book I suppose but it's just uh, the process of writing it was so strange in that uh, you know I'm not a planner of books at the best of times um but writing that book, I, I would be writing it, and, and I had a vague notion that I, I was interested in folk tales and fairy tales, and I knew perhaps there would be something of that in it. But the twists in that, at, some, at various points, David has told fairy tales And I hadn't. When I sat down, I didn't think, "Well, this is going to be Red Riding Hood, and this is how it's going to end." Instead, I, it would begin. It would seem appropriate for somebody to begin telling that story, and then I would follow the story towards the end, and then go, well, wow, that's." Curious, and then kind of move on and try not to think very much about it and I suppose it's a, it's a real product of, of my unconscious to some degree writing always is but you don't want to mystify it you know you need to be sitting down at your desk but I think I've, I've been, probably been living with that book since my childhood in a way and, and everything and it came out of childhood fears and, um, and childhood experiences and so it had been when I sat down to write it all of this stuff kind of just poured out it's why I've never apart from writing two short stories um, I'd never. will never go back to it. I will never so write the book of so lost course. things too. You know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the book of found
1: things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know. I don't want to do that. It is. It, and for all. It, and when I went back, because I, I went, I did something that you don't really do very often, because it was we were putting illustrations in it, so it had to be set again. And therefore, it's possible that printer's errors will creep into it. So you end up rereading a book that you wrote a decade before, which is, no writer wants to do that. It's awful. And and I could see the flaws, I suppose, but they were human flaws. And and to resist that urge to tinker with it... um, and simply just change a word here or there because you know it was repetition or yeah. there was simply a kind of more elegant way now that i knew i could phrase something but otherwise leaving it entirely alone because it's 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 no longer my book um it becomes part of the that's that's just in general terms not just specifically but specifically about that book But books become part of people's lives and the people who who love something that you've done don't want you to change it they love the thing that they read. And and if you begin altering it and you begin trying to improve it, you know, you... You're kind of betraying their affection a little bit, something, and you're betraying their trust in what you've done. And I think you have to be very careful about doing that. So
0: you, yeah.
1: you're better off leaving it alone. That's um, true.
0: I suppose you could have somebody come up to you on this tour and say, oh, "I like that bit where so and so," and you'd be like,
1: "Yeah, Oh, okay. or, whoops! Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that you, you could have. That's why whenever people ask me, you know, occasionally people used to ask me, "Is, is there a book that you particularly that maybe you don't like if the books I read? Mean, the book that's particularly flawed." And, and you can't really answer that question because guaranteed it's the, it's the book that somebody in the audience loves and suddenly they go hey, what, what does that make me you know if I'm the idiot who likes that book even the author doesn't like that one you know um, so you have to once you, once you let, let a book out ceases to be your book once it gets bound into a cover and put on the shelf you, it's a limit to what you can really do with it the, yeah I mean
0: the, the universe goes from the page to somebody's head and then it's their own piece.
1: yeah and, and, and I'll probably be talking about this later but when I'm talking to people, but the the idea that they, you know, they're not fixed objects that you bring your experiences to the book that you read, and and mm-hmm. you alter the book and the book alters you in turn. It's yeah. they're like I said, it's a very complex relationship that readers have with books that they love or books that affect them in some way. Um, and so that notion, as you said, as I said of, of, of being aware of that and being aware that it's a very delicate construct and that relationship is very fragile, and and you you can't really go fiddling about with it too much you have to yeah. kind of trust the reader and trust the book and, and step away and move on to the next thing you know, we all think that we're getting better as being writers you know, we we'll would all be disillusioned about that at some point <laughs> um, but um, um, where was I going with that uh, I do this. Yeah, the train, the train of thought went off. It was sidetrack. Um, You're on the internet
0: and you've clicked a link. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's probably completely irrelevant anyway.
0: Um, well, the, speaking of uh, getting better, than the next thing, the next question was going to be about uh, anything new in the in the pipeline, anything coming up.
1: I've delivered uh, the next pocketbook which is called A Game of Ghosts, and that was delivered last week. And I'd been working on something for um, a really long time. Um, I had two parts of research books on the floor of my office. And I kept adding to it. They were for two books that were not going to be genre novels. They were going to be odd books, I think. <laughs> uh, and I kept and I realised I was prevaricating because I would keep saying, well, I can't really write this book until... because there's always more research that you could do. And, I, and it's awful. It's when I'm talking to people about writing... Um, You've got people going, I've got all my ideas down, and I'm, but I'm assembling files and things, I'm writing stuff down, and you kind of think at some point you, you need to just get your hands dirty and do it. And I realised I needed to follow my own advice. And so I, I'm, when I haven't been talking on this tour, I've been taking my, my laptop out and I've been working away and rewriting this thing that's, that that's dates back to my first you know, it's the first time I went to the United States to tour a book, and just a moment of contact with a bookseller who said something to me about an individual I'd always been fascinated by. And it turned out he'd met this person. And I'd never, for some reason, because of the, the nature, I'm very reluctant to say anything about him, um, it had never struck me that that I that I would meet somebody who had met this individual. He seemed to me to be trapped in a different time. And um and so I I've been writing this book is a Kind of fictionalized meta biography, a fictionalized biography of a real person who's never named in the course of the book. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, whose name is never used and uh, follows pretty much his life from the turn of the, from the end of the last century, the end of the, the 19th century up to the the middle of the nineteenth, the middle of 1960s you know, we're just both under- sitting yeah, we're better than yeah yeah no, no, no. and it's, a, it's somebody who's really really well known but has never really been written about in this way who was a very private individual and yet had a fascinating um, personal life and a fascinating series of relationships with the people who worked alongside him and, and yeah there was a lot there and because he was so restrained in his public utterances because he he was very dignified and very polite and very anxious not to cause offence that I think a lot of things that hurt him he kept inside of him, and so when you read his public pronouncements and he'd be written about a lot, they didn't really give any indication he would never kind of answer he would answer he would never answer the question that was asked him he would answer in a way that would not give offence to anybody and and I thought there was so much there and and so it's kind of ninety thousand words long and two hundred chapters it's really fragmented and um, there's no quotation marks because everything is kind of inside his head and you have to sometimes figure out exactly who's saying what and it's not but okay. well they may hate it and in which case they do I'm still glad
0: I've done it so is that something that you think, when it comes to marketing, would, you, would the person... Well, it's
1: really difficult, you, you know, it's it's that was one of the questions, because I hadn't told my publishers at all that I was working on it. It was really something that I'd been working on for so long and not wanting. Because the moment you tell them you're doing something, yeah, I try never to tell them I'm doing anything, you know. And I try, when I do things like the Book of Lost, Things Are Not they're always out, of, they're not to contract. They're done on the side, and when they're ready, I kind of go, look, I also have this if you want to look at it. Um... And so yeah, they, they were when they kinda of said they kinda of said, Well, are we allowed to name him on the book jacket? And I said, I don't know. <sighs> and what we're gonna put on the cover? I don't know that either. You know, this this isn't really my problem, you know. I just I just write the book. But I think they were already kind of scratching their heads and going, Good God, cock, you don't talk. Just, just do something easy, you know? Uh, but we'll see, but I, I'm I'm really yeah, I I'm, I'm drift I'm at that stage where i I, I'm writers, I think sometimes I think it's parts that are great and then I think oh, nobody's gonna want this awful, you know. And the awful and maybe there's a little part of me as well that's I you drag your history with you. Um, wherever you go and, and while I've always tried to move around and tried to write whatever interests me and to look at the same subject from different angles you do inevitably you, you get bracketed as a, as a genre writer and if you write something that isn't genre fiction there's a danger that you there's an instinctive response I think from outside that look I'm overreaching himself think he's going to be respectable you know and God preserve us from respectability um, but there is that slight fear and this part of me was thinking maybe I should have just done it pseudonymously and but then I thought no it's part of what I do and it's there is a part there is a, a relevance to the things I've done in the past so even though it looks like a complete departure to others it's not to me yeah so it should remain but it's well, it yeah sounds difficult sounds fascinating I don't know. yeah it'll come out with, with luck this time next year I hope brilliant uh, John thank you so much oh for it's, been it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure quite lovely I'll never forgive you for the spelling test but it's still a pleasure
0: <laughs> you give her a nice quote she gives you a spelling test <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it that doesn't seem entirely fair yeah. brilliant well, thank you for listening everyone uh, we'll see you next time bye hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast it really was fun to record as was John's event after the recording uh, there's a few events I just want to mention coming up in Walsall Libraries before we go. We're getting into the Christmas season, so there's a number of things on. Uh, if you want to go to Walsall Wood Library on Wednesday the 7th of December, between half past two and half past three, there's the Chocolate Tailor, which is a tour by Jackie Roberts. Uh, she's a chocolatier, she'll be demonstrating her trade, and I believe she'll be giving out samples, so that might be worth a go if you like your chocolate. It's £2 plus refreshments. Booking is essential for that one. If you want to phone Warsaw Library on 01922 655 572 then you can book a place. Then on Thursday the 8th of December we've got a couple of events. The first one is at Feezy Library, that's from 10am. It's Christmas Carols from the Meadowview School Choir. It's £2 plus refreshments, uh, which is mulled wine and mince pies and there's no booking needed for that one, you can just turn up on the day. Uh, then again on Thursday the 8th of December, this time at Streetly Library. This is quarter past two to quarter past three and this one is a centre stage talk uh, where Graham and Judy talk about opening up their garden to the public as part of the National Garden Scheme. It's £2 plus refreshments and again there's no booking needed. Then the next day, on Friday the 9th of December, we're over at Aldridge Library. This is between 10 and 11 in the morning and this one's a talk from Ned Williams. It's called Looking at Shops. And it's about the history of shops, from like the corner shop to the big department store. Uh, this is two pound again, plus refreshments, and booking is essential for this one. So, I 655 nine double two six double five five six nine to get in touch with Aldridge Library. And the last thing we'll mention today is at Woodland Hall Library on Tuesday the thirteenth of December. It's between half past ten and noon, and it's a carol concert with St Giles' School Choir refreshments are available for a small donation and there's no booking needed so go over and check that out all our other events as ever all listed on lovelibrarieswalsall.co.uk go and check it out see you next time bye